Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Probably those people who've been giving you advice about how to improve your leadership start with something along the lines of you have to know yourself. But the question for today is, have you ever stopped to think about what actually constitutes your sense of self? So how do you define yourself? And by the way, what does this tell us about how you change yourself or can you change or how do you be authentic? How do you find meaning? Um, How do you understand your own identity? And how do you understand the conflict between other groups? Because all of those wrap around our sense of self. So today we're going to talk about some of the latest thinking and what it means to understand who you are. So my guest today is Brian Lowry. The book we're talking about is a lovely book that's getting kudos all over everywhere, Selfless, The Social Creation of You. Brian is the Walter Kenneth Kirkpatrick Professor of Organizational Behavior, um, and he's recently been named a founding co-director of Stanford's New Institute on Race, and the mission of the Institute is to produce cutting-edge research and solutions to realize racial justice. Now, Brian's research examines the reality that others shape our lives and that we shape theirs, and so this has lots of implications, needless to say, for racial identities and gender identities, and a whole lot of other things, as you're going to hear as we go through. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, Wanda. Thanks for having me. The pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, I love the book, I just have to say. And I have to say it's also challenging because (laughs) it forces you to question some things that perhaps I might have taken for granted along the way. And I have a feeling it's going to do the same thing for everybody who's listening. I also have a feeling that was the intent of writing the book at the same time. So let me start where I always start. Why? What prompted you to focus on this sense of how we define ourselves? Um, that's a great question. I, been, I've always been interested in how we know who we are and um, even the some of the work I do in, in race is um, about why who we are affects the opportunities we have, right? And, and underneath that is still like, who are we? And why are people seeing us as they do? And how is that affecting who we can be? Um, so I think I've, I've always been interested in that. And I've been thinking a lot about um, freedom, right? Mm-hmm. A lot about um, how much we can choose to be one thing or another, right? How how we're created and constructed. Um, and so, you know, I've been thinking about that for quite a while and it culminated in the writing of this book. Okay. Freedom. So let's talk about that for a minute. Um, all of us, I think this is the one of the more challenging concepts for me in the book, is this sense that do I, I mean, I feel like I have complete freedom in my life. And yet at the same time, you're going to have me question whether or not I really do have freedom. Do I have freedom to choose how I want to be, who um, I want to be? Here's a, here's another question. I'm going to ask you a question. I'd love to do this. Do you really want freedom? And it's if an so, why? What, why, why did, what is it that you think you want? Well, I think for me, I think everybody may answer this one differently, but for me, it's not feeling that somebody else is controlling me. 
Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So here's a question. Let's say you wanted to make a decision. I don't know. Let's say you're going to buy a new car or move to another city. Um, you don't want anyone to have any influence on that? I didn't say influence. I said control. Oh, what's the difference? Um, so you, someone can influence me by saying, hey, I'd really like you to be in this city, or hey, we got a lot of friends, or hey, there's really interesting things to do, or here's a good job. It still feels like it's my choice. So it's that ah. sense of choice that is the key factor. Yeah, I think that that's, this is the illusion. I think that that choice is an illusion. That's okay. kind of, that's, I think, and I don't think you really, you, I won't say you, I don't think people really want freedom the way they think they do. I think um, people want to feel like they're the source of their behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's different than freedom. That's that's not necessarily the same. So I think people don't have a clear sense of what they mean when they say they want to be free, or what they mean when they say they are free, or what they mean when they say they're choosing. Um, so you know what I what I mean is, if everything was exactly the same, you could have made a different choice. I don't think that exists. I'm pretty confident that does not exist. That's not the same as saying that you didn't make the you didn't do the thing. Right. Those are those are different claims. I just don't think that people want to be free from influence, which is quite close to saying they don't want to be free at all. So free from influence. All right. So I sort of know where we're going and I'm gonna back up to your definition of self <laughs> and all of that in a minute. But uh-huh. knowing that your conclusion is that we are determined by our social connections. And I believe as human beings, we're driven by those social connections. And your argument of free is I don't want to be free from social connections. So those people always have an influence on me. Am I in the right direction here? That is exactly right. That you, who you are, like when you think of Wanda, who Wanda is, that idea is a social creation. And social creation, meaning that it's a function of your relationships and interactions you have on the street and your podcast interviews, all those things culminate in the idea of Wanda is what I'm saying. So when Wanda wants to make a decision, what does it mean for it to be free from those other relationships? So it's not. It's always. (laughs) You don't don't want it to. And and I would say more than that, you don't want it to be, right? Yeah. Because you you want to feel like Wanda did it. Okay, who's who's Wanda? And what is that? What's the content of that idea okay. of Wanda? All right. Okay, <laughs> we jumped ahead. Let's back up before I get everybody completely confused here. It is true, though. You're right. I don't want to be free from influence because I don't mm-hmm. want to be untethered. It's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to this concept okay. of self. Um, let me kind of, when you say self, what do you mean by that? What are we talking about here? Uh, this, is a, this is a really good question. Um, and I should be clear, there's a lot of different ways you can think about what the self is. Um, and there are psychologists who talk about different components of self and have, that's been the case since, you know, um, uh, mid 19th century, right? William James talked about this. What I mean though, and I'll, I'll, I'll say it in a way that it, um, it doesn't, it's not technical. What I mean is who you're talking about when you talk about yourself. Um, when I say self, I mean that concept you have of who you are. That's what I'm referring to. So it's um, it's not the pure feeling, right? It's not just consciousness. I'm not talking about that. 
I'm not talking about the physical manifestation. I'm not talking about your genes and your, your body. I'm talking about the idea of you, your idea of you. Um, and I'm saying like, that is a construction. So you say, Wanda wants this, Wanda likes that. And you wouldn't use that language, but when you think in those terms, that's the thing I'm talking about when I say so. All right, so I'm the kind of person who, or yeah. I prefer X, or I don't do this because that's not a thing that I do, are all these, concepts of myself. Yeah, these beliefs you have about what constitutes Wanda. Okay. All right. When, I'm going to turn the tables on you, Brian. So mm. when you think about your concept of self, mm. what do you think about? What goes into that for you? Oh, I think about all my identities, right? So I think about being a man. I think about being a black man. I think about being a professor. I think about being a partner or a brother. And, that, and this is what I mean, right? These are the things, all those things exist in relationships. All those things exist because of relationships. So when you think about identity, almost all of the identities we, that I think, well, it's not, I shouldn't say it this way, but many of the identities we focus on are social identities. Um, I could say I'm tall, but even that, when you think about it, and I, you know, is All relative. Exactly. It exists in the context of the belief about others, right? It still right. is a social construct. So when you start talking about yourself, you start explaining yourself what, what and who you are, it's hard, it's hard to do that without reference to other people. Right. I'm going to do one, um, you know, one of the things that I always say about me, particularly when I'm introducing clients, myself to a new client, is I say I'm fairly candid. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want a direct message, you don't want to work with me. All right, now. <laughs> but that, too, is all relative mm -hmm. to what other people around me do, how direct they are, how indirect they are, how diplomatic they are, et cetera. Even that one isn't an absolute I'm A and not B. I just yeah, lean I mean, more I, in one direction yeah. than the other. I mean, and it's also in the context, right? It's in a social context. And, and it, to even say I'm candid and assume something about the cultural environment, mm -hmm. right? Like that is a meaningful thing or meaningful way to describe yourself. Assume something about the context in which you, the social context in which you live. And so again, I think it's incredibly hard to think of yourself as a human being without reference to other human beings and your relationships to them. Okay. All right. So, what do we get wrong then? I mean, where have we gone wrong in this definition of self? Um, so, I think there's, there's two ways that we get it wrong. One way, I think, is just maybe, you know, a natural part of being a human, which is you have this experience of being inside your body. Um, and that experience leads you to try to make sense of like what that is in there. And it seems uniquely you and nobody else has direct access to it. And it seems separate from other people. Um, I think that's an illusion. So I think we get it wrong because we have this, this illusion of um, I'll call it internality, like this illusion of existing inside. Right. And you can, and if you want to be a bit technical, this is kind of like the, the mind-body kind of distinction, mm -hmm. right? And people think of themselves as somehow existing within the vessel that is their body. Again, I, I think that's just an illusion. So that's, that's one reason I think we get it wrong. The other reason I think we get it wrong is because, it, and this is a cultural one, because we're so focused on the individual as the unit that matters. And right? like, I am important. 
I matter, my freedom of choice. You know, these are the things that are paramount in our society or our culture. It doesn't have to be that way. That I think is, it varies from society to society how much emphasis is placed on that. But I think at least in the States and in most Western places that focus on individuality um, as somehow virtuous in and of itself is also a reason we get it wrong. Okay. Because we forget what it is. We forget the other, we ignore, I guess I should say, not forget the other people that help define self. So we pretend as if we are a single individual operating in that context. Am I yeah, not that's, quite? Yeah, that's right. No, that's right. I would say, I would just go further and say, we believe we can exist as human by ourselves. So mm-hmm. that's nonsense. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think you cannot be, you cannot be a human being alone. Right. This is, um, I think about how many coaching conversations I've had with people inside large companies where the notion is less I and more we and giving more credit. I know you think you made that sale uniquely all by yourself, but you didn't uniquely all by yourself. It's Mm -hmm. the same concept. You exist, even though you get an accountability for a sale behind your name, you didn't do it alone. And Mm -hmm. that's another piece of what we're talking about here. Same idea. 100%. 100%. Like, I think one of the things that I will say is that whenever you say I, you really mean we, right? Like that it's, there's, there's never, when you talk about something you've done, there's never a singular I, right? There's always a a cast of characters behind that I. And sometimes we lose sight of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Easy to do, especially as you point out in societies that are very individualistically centered versus more some of the more Eastern societies that are very much more community-centered. So, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. All right, let's go back to the first point you make, that we think about our experience as being inside our body and that you think that's an illusion. Okay, you cite some really interesting... So, like, that's a hard one for me to even get my head around. What on earth does that mean? I've not really even thought about it all that much, but you cite some amazing research in this that's like, whoa... Really? So mm-hmm. walk us through that sense of being inside of the experience of inside our body is actually an illusion. Yeah. So <clears throat> like if, if people are listening to this right now, they probably have a sense of, you know, being in their head, listening to us, or if there's somebody, if they're watching, like being, you know, a few inches behind their eyes, looking out, right? It's like yep. you're in this machine and that's, and you, you have a feeling like a strong experience of being in there. Yeah. And what's interesting about some of the research, and this is um, some of it is, you know, cognitive, cognitive neuroscience kind of stuff. You can break that sense. Um, and there's, there's a number of ways you can do it. So one, you can give people, and this is a very common one, you can give people the experience that um, something that is clearly not a part of their body is a part of their body, right? So you can have a sense of like entering into a space that is not your body. And the, the most... Um, Common um, example is the the hammer and the fake hand example where you get people to have, you put their hand, one hand under the table, you put a mirror between where, you know, next to the other hand. So it looks like their hand is on the table, but you put a rubber, you put a rubber mallet, I mean, a rubber hand there. And then you basically stroke the rubber hand mm-hmm. and you stroke the hand under the table at the same time while they're looking at the mirror. So it looks like you're stroking their hand and it feels like their hand is being stroked at the same time. You do this for a little bit and then you pull out a hammer and you proceed to smash the rubber hand and they'll jerk their real hand away and they'll wince as if the rubber hand is theirs. 
right? So you've created this illusion that that rubber hand is a part of their body. And I think they're the more compelling kind of things is where you can make people feel like they're having an out-of-body experience. Or you can you can push basically their sense of self to a space that is not that doesn't their body doesn't occupy. And it's similar, like you what you do is an easier way to think about it is you put a headset on someone, a virtual headset, and they're looking at the they're looking from at the back of themselves. So it's in essence a camera behind them and it's being projected onto the headset. And then again, you stroke their back and you they see their back being stroked simultaneously. And you have to imagine this because you never see yourself from the back, right? So you're looking at, but it is you. So you're looking at yourself and you're seeing yourself being stroked and you're feeling yourself being stroked. And then you take off the headset and you move them around and you ask them to stand where they were standing when they were being stroked. And they move toward the place where the avatar was. They move toward the place where the image was, not where they were actually standing, which suggests they had this feeling of being in this space that wasn't occupied by their physical body. So there's those things. And then there's the one that I find most amazing where you can get people to confuse their face a bit with someone else's face. So this yeah. one is the most, I think the most incredible. So this, this has been replicated a number of times. It's called the infacement effect. So you can look it up if you want. And so in essence, you have someone sit across the table from someone else and you stroke the person's face with a feather on their cheek. You stroke their cheek with a feather and you stroke the person who's watching cheek with a feather. So I'm watching you. We're looking at each other. I see your face being stroked. I feel my face being stroked at the same time. Right. Or you don't, or you don't do the simultaneous stroking. This is a, this is important. And then after that's over, you show an array of photos. And so you show a photo that's either your face or the face of the person that you were looking at. And then you have a number of morph, morphed faces. So a mix of your face, and the other person's face. And then you, all you're showing photos one at a time. And the question is, just tell me when this face is mostly you and when it's not mostly you. Okay. okay. So they're showing these they're showing these photos randomly. And in essence, what happens is if your face was stroked at the same time as the face of the person you were looking at, when you get to about 50, let's say 52% the other person and 48% you, you still feel like it's mostly you. If your faces were not stroked simultaneously, you don't make that mistake. So in essence, it's as if you see the person's face and you, you're having a hard time distinguishing when it flips from like mostly you to mostly the other person. You, you're having a hard time if your faces are stroked simultaneously, which suggests that you are starting to kind of confuse your face and the other person's face which is an amazing thing. Like you, there's no, I mean, I get, it's a small effect, but it's an incredible effect. Like you would not think that you would ever confuse your face and another person's face because you know you, you're there. Yeah. (laughs) But you can, but people can do this reliably. They can reliably produce this effect. It doesn't look like it's that hard to create. And then the question is like, what does that mean about how we know who we are? Yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, presumably if I'm not stroked, and we did say this, if I'm not having my face stroked at the same time somebody else's person's, I don't make that, that mix. You do not make that mistake, no. Okay. And is it, do you think this happens because I'm just identifying with the other person so strongly, or do you think I'm confusing the experience in my body and what I'm seeing? 
What's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, and yeah, yes. Yeah. I, all right. I got to ask, have you ever done, have you ever been a participant in this experience? No, no, I've never done it. No. I like need to go try it. You want to go try it out? Yeah, you should try it out. You should try it out. My guess is that you don't, my guess, I don't know. My guess is you don't feel anything. And here's, here's another way. Okay, I'll give you an example of something you have experienced. We all have, and everyone that's listening has experienced. And they talk about this if you read these studies. Of course, there's basically like, of course this can happen. Like, how do you know, do you know you're the same face as you were 10 years ago? Your face is clearly different, but you're not confused. You're not like, huh, is that me? You're like, yeah, it's me. Some days. Older, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but the point is like, there is, if tomorrow you had a scar on your face, yeah. you wouldn't be confused about, is that me? Right? So there has to be a way in which you, you are updating who you are. And it's not purely as a function of the physical, your physical um, stability. Right? There okay. has to be something else. And what they're doing in, in part is playing with this. And what's interesting about it to me is it allows for the possibility that um, you can incorporate different concepts of people into who you are, at least physically, you know? Right. So, and if you can do it physically, then you can certainly do it in other ways. Mm -hmm. And And if you, go ahead. I was going to say, to me, it makes a ton of sense. If I think about human behavior and I think about who I'm talking to, and I think about the messages I hear from that person that I like over and over and over and over again, day in and day out, I'm going to assimilate them into my belief set frequently without even questioning them. So my sense of what I believe, I know more based on who you are around mm-hmm. day in and day out. Yeah. And, I, you know, there's these other studies. Um, there's the researchers, um, Aaron and Aaron there. That's, I mean, they're, they're uh, a couple that do, have done some work together in the past. And it was big for a while. I don't know. It was in the New York Times. Like, yeah, what was it like? 50 questions to fall in love or something yes. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And that's in that work where they... How many was it? 36. There you go. Oh, look at that. <laughs> and in essence, the, what some of the research focuses on is this idea of self and other. I don't know if that, they didn't talk about that in an article, but in essence, what they'll do is they'll show different circles and they'll have them like apart, a certain distance apart. And then the next one will be closer and closer into their completely overlapping circles. And then they'll say, which one of these um, different pictures of the circles represent you and some like let's say your romantic partner people are not confused at all about this they're like oh i get it and in essence what they're saying is closeness to some extent is inclusion of the self inclusion of the other in the self so that's what closeness is inclusion of the other in the self um and you i think they would argue that at the extreme you would you would have a hard time distinguishing between yourself and someone that you were sufficiently close to. Well, you would define yourself in part by the relationship with the other. Uh huh. But you could imagine even more than that. Some something like you would feel the other person's pain as your pain. Yeah. You would think yep. of their thoughts as your thoughts. Like this is the and this goes again to like if that's true, what does it mean that you're in there? Yeah. Okay. Right? And this is, I think of the self as an external thing. That's, that's part of what I want to get to. So what do you mean by an external thing? Say that. A thing out that exists out there in the world that's a concept? Am I? 
The thing right? the self is constructed on the outside and experienced as existing on the inside. Okay. Right, that you are being constructed in your relationships with other people. Um, that you that you are in in close relationships, you are you are part of that other person. Those things are outside of you, but you experience them, and they they in some ways exist or seem to exist on the inside. Okay. It feels like yourself is emanating from inside and then affecting the outside. What if the self is being constructed on the outside and then infiltrating? <laughs> And affecting the experience inside is what I think yeah. you're. Kind yes. Of. Yeah. So it's just kind of a a, a topsy turvy way to think about it, right? For most people. I got to get that right. It's it's constructed on the outside. The mm-hmm. self is constructed on the outside in relation to other people, mm-hmm. and it's impacting the experience inside. Yep. Powerful. Okay. All right. Now, let's do the second part of your argument, which is that the self is a social construction, Mm. as opposed to this pure abstract thing that I just decide is me and is going to be me and what I want me to be. So run down why you say it's a social construction. Because I don't believe in magic. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We go a little deeper on it than that one. (laughs) Because here's the question. What's the alternative? The alternative is that you were somehow, I don't know, constructed in some other plane and like inserted into your body. Like, I don't know, where, where is this, this, this magical thing coming from exactly? Okay. Well, so you could say it was I mean. born with it, but then again, we all grow and develop and things change about it. So it can't just be I was born with it. No. And I don't even know what, what, what is it that you were born with exactly? Like, so... Unless you mean this is where people try to think there's a reductionism to like genetics. You know, like, uh, sure, you exist as a physical thing that has certain potentialities. Like, well, I don't, I don't deny that. I don't deny that there's a physical reality, but I don't think that's what people are talking about when they talk about themselves at all. Right. I don't think that people are talking, they don't, again, they feel like the body is just a vessel for something else. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is what I mean by I think that people mean something like a soul. That's what they mean. They mean like there's who they were, who they are was implanted in this body and, and like it basically whole cloth. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the thing that people mean if they really examine it. And I just don't, that to me, I don't know. I, it could be true, but it, if it's true, it's magical from my perspective. And I don't have any evidence that magic exists. <laughs> well, Okay, so let's talk about this notion about the authentic self, because this is going to come back to the same issue about whether there's magic or not. One of my frustrations in my coaching practice is you're trying to get some people, somebody to do something differently because it's going to have a better outcome. And they say, that's just not me. Okay. And there's this somehow belief that there is a me that is this this authentic singular thing, and that I have to always be that singular person. That's what it means to be authentic. Now, my problem with that is it means you never grow. It means you never acquire new skills. It means you never experience different things because you can only do it one way. So I get really frustrated with this one. (laughs) You say we have multiple selves. And I think that speaks to the question of whether it's a thing that's implanted in you or not. But let's talk about the multiple selves. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, 
Actually, what I believe is more extreme than that. Okay. Um, first, let me go back to the authentic thing. I don't think that people are serious about it when they say what they're saying to you. They're not, they're not, they're not serious. The reason they're not serious is because they expect to change and grow and they want to change and grow. Mm-hmm. They also aren't serious because they're different people in different contexts, for sure. They're not the same person with their parents as they are with their kids. If they have kids, they're not the same person at work as they are with their their, their buddies or friends at at the bar. And that all is authentic from their perspective. And I'd, I'd agree with that. But the idea that there's one way to be is just, not, I don't think that's serious. Mm-hmm. Um and that that kind of the way I just described it suggests the multiple selves, right? The self here and the self there and the self there. And I I think um, that's a that's a reasonable way to think about it. I think a way that people can understand. But I, I think the reality is um, more extreme. Okay. I think the reality is that we are fluid, not that we are multiple selves. That we are completely fluid from moment to moment from interaction to interaction, that we're being changed at every moment. And that the self that we were five minutes ago is not the self that we are right now. If you're, if someone's listening to this podcast, they will be different at the end of this podcast. They will have different thoughts. They will agree or disagree with something that we, that I said or you said, and they it will affect them whether they understand it can articulate that effect or not is not relevant, but they will have been influenced by it. And that is true as you move through life. And when you think of it that way, it almost certainly has to be true, mm-hmm. right? The reason to have experiences is to be changed, right? That's the beauty of it. And if you're changed, what does it mean to be the same self? And in that sense, I think the self as a stable concept um, is, is, again, uh, something I think is an illusion, and by the way, I'm not the only first wish the person to say this. Like, this is a, a really old idea. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. It's interesting that we do, do want to be changed by our experiences, by our conversations, by our interactions, by our social construct. That is part of it. Um, you think about falling in love as mean to be changed by somebody else in some dramatic ways, for example, like one of them. But yet there's still this concept of me as myself, my identity is more rigid. It's like it's not as fluid as you want to describe it, even though I would say, yeah, 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 I've got all these different experiences. It's fascinating. But I'm still me. I'm still me. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you know. I have I have I have some some thoughts about that I have not said I don't I don't. I don't really know why that is so important to people, mm-hmm. but it's, it appears to be. Mm-hmm. Um, to I don't know, maybe not everyone. There's some people who make claims that are are, are challenge this, but um, there's a philosopher Strawson who claims that he doesn't believe in say a a narrative self, and by that he means like people have this story, like I, this story is who I am, right? And it, it's all connected. It's all me. I am the story. He's like, no, nah, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't, not that he doesn't believe that exists. He's like, I don't have that experience. I, I understand myself differently than that. So not everyone has that, but maybe it's, now I'm going to speculate wildly. Okay. You, you ready? Yeah, go. Maybe it's um, fear in some way, like the fear of not being here in a continuous way. The fear of not being 
me not knowing who I am, the fear of being blown around by the currents of the social interactions that I find myself in or the culture that I exist in or the historical moment that is now, that people want to exist in some immortal way. They like the idea or want some for some reason or other human beings cling to the idea of a unchanging, everlasting, infinite soul. Yeah. And that in your life, you accept the idea that you're being changed moment to moment and that's a different you. It it breaks that illusion right. or it challenges that that belief. I think you're right about it. I think it's that fear of not knowing who you are and that fear of being so changed by events and interactions that you, you, it, it's that sense of I immortality. I've lost my immortality. I've lost my uniqueness, and I've lost my sense of control. If I can't control mm-hmm. who I think of myself, who I am, then what the heck can I control? And I think what you're arguing is you don't in the first place. Yeah, and I think there there's some, I think, liberation in it if you think, think of it from a certain angle, but I, I get why people are, I, I get why people are uncomfortable with it. It's it's like I'm saying you're a unimportant drone in the beehive of humanity or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? That you that oh, you're No, but I'm important. Wait, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You you know, and this that that's uncomfortable. I get it. Yeah. All right. So let me see if I can drill these arguments down to a couple of points that people can hang on to. Because you can go, you know, each of these you can go spinning off in quite a long depth here. But one is the notion that we have an illusion that our self is the inside of our body. And you want to argue that no, the self is a construction that is created outside the body and then experienced and impacts the experience inside the body that that construction of the self is socially driven. It's um, derived in in comparison to people around us and influenced by all those social interactions and identities that we have. And that our self is a fluid shift, that we are being changed moment to moment by the experiences and conversations that we're having. Whether that makes us comfortable or uncomfortable, your belief is there's still a fluidity there. That's right. And one thing, one thing I'll add is that this is true for everyone. And that's important. And the reason that's important is because there's responsibility on the other side, which means if it's true that everyone is fluid and everyone is being changed, created moment to moment in their relationships, that means every social interaction you have, mm-hmm. you're both being created and creating. Yes. Okay. That is powerful. And that says we have to pay a lot more attention to the nature of the interactions and what's going on in those. All right. So let's talk about it. So I, let's go straight there. This notion of conflict and of resolving differences. So I happen to believe that the starting point for any resolution of conflict is sort of understanding where I actually am, what I'm thinking, and understanding what you're thinking, even though we may adamantly disagree. But that perspective taking is the key element to conflict. That happens to be my my point. I have a feeling you're going to say yes, but it's more complicated than that. So 
How do we think about conflict then in this context of a fluid self? Um, well, the way I would talk about it is more um, a conflict among the different cast of characters that we bring to bear in any interaction. So I, I so you're right. I, I don't. I, I usually when I talk about conflict, I talk about it the way you do, which is perspective taking. That is understanding the other person's experience and understanding how the relationship that you're engaging in is producing the conflict. It's not something about this person. It's something about our engagement, and that's a different point. And that requires you to try to understand the experience of the other person. If you accept the idea that that the the singular is really a collective, and by that I mean when I say I, I really mean we, right? So I'm bringing a lot with me, like my interactions, how I understand myself, my cultural background, and all of that is social. I'm bringing that to bear in every interaction I have. And the same is true of the person you're interacting with. It's not just them. It's everything they bring with them, the cultural engagement they have, their upbringing, their relationships, their all these things, the interactions they've had that day. And so understanding that might provide a different way of making sense of the conflict that's happening, right? It, it it might broaden the lens, right? So it's not like you're having a a conflict with this singular individual, although that's an easy way to make sense of it. You're really having a conflict with some aspect of who that person is, some aspect of the relationships they're engaging in, some aspect of the culture in which they live. And that's a it's it's in a way it, it kind of. Um, it might allow you to depersonalize the conflict a little bit when you don't concentrate it until it's something about this person who exists inside their head and was put there in some magical way. And you say the conflict is something that's bigger than that. It's different than that. It's not, you're not having a conflict with some magical soul. You're, you're having a conflict with some complex, constructed human being. Right. Let me do a trivial <laughs> dive on this one just to kind of give us something concrete to talk about. Uh huh. Um, how many times have I seen, in fact, just today in a conversation, a manager's manager makes a comment that the manager's manager often makes to many different people, as in, this will look good in your next set of interviews, or this will look good, it'll give you something to talk about in your next interviews, or look good on your CV, or some variation on like, but saying this is a good thing for you that you're, this thing that you're doing. Okay. I can interpret that, that in a host of different ways. And if that manager's manager has had a particularly frustrating day or particularly frustrating last minute interaction with somebody else, their comment may come with a lot of edge, on it. That has nothing to do with our interaction at the moment. But at the same time, there's all those other parts of me that, wait, I lost my job before and I don't want it to happen again. And I want to be sure I leave before anybody gets rid of me. I'm bringing all that stuff to this interaction. And the point of what was said, how it was said, where it was said, what it meant is lost in the translation. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I think, um, well, one, one kind of conclusion is like you should take very few things personally. Easier said like, than done. <laughs> 100%. Like I, I'm not saying it's easy to do. I'm just saying it's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, and I think understanding what one of the things, I'll just highlight one small thing that you said. 
um, highlighting that you have no idea what's driving the way this person is interacting with you. And almost certainly there are components that have nothing to do with you. And more than that, almost certainly there are components that the person who's interacting with you doesn't even understand. Right. So I, I, I talked about this all. Here's a, a silly example that everyone I think can, um, can understand when you're hungry, sometimes you're just irritable. And sometimes you don't even know, like you have to like reflect on like, you can feel irritable and be like, oh, I didn't eat. Maybe it's yeah. because like you can have an irritability and, and it'd be about hunger and not even know it's about hunger. And some, you can end up having an interaction and then being, let's call it a little, a little sharp and it just could be hunger and you wouldn't even know. But that other person's experience of it is going to be, you were being sharp with them because of them. And I, and what I would say is that that example is small. Now magnify it to like every interaction you had, you're going, you're going through your day. Who knows what interactions you've had that are influencing you right now, who you've become in this moment and how you're interacting with this person in front of you. It's like you are mm, caring so much with you all the time that when I interpret your behavior with me, seems a, a strange thing to assume that I am the primary driver of how you're interacting with me. Or maybe even in some more than that, sometimes what people will behave is like when you talk to me as your direct report, everything that you say to me is really about me. Right. That 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 once you once you once you start thinking about people in the way I'm suggesting, it's it's hard to make that assumption. Like it'd be it's a strange assumption to make. Yeah. And that makes it a little bit easier to take it less personally. Um and maybe that's helpful. And again, when you're interacting with other people, like you might be irritated with this person. Like, what is that about? Is that really about that other person or is it about other things going on mm-hmm. with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, about something else that I am frustrated by, irritated by, hungry for. I mean, there's a whole range, as you point out, of things that can be happening. In And people always assume that work is isolated from home. Because I find this all the time. Whatever is going on at home is part of the you that is right now. And it is going to show up in impacting your interactions in one way or another. So I find with people that if I can get them to generate multiple hypotheses about what might be driving the behavior of somebody else, then it can break open the possibility that it's not all purely about you or directed at you. That seems to help. Yeah, that, that thing, I, I see that. That's a, I think that's a, a good way to go. Okay. All right. So let's talk another one about this. What does this mean about uh, change? Like, can I intentionally change myself? All right. This is the one that people don't like. Yeah? Uh-huh. Um, so the first part is easy. Yeah, you can change. You change all the time. This is the fluidity point. Yep. I don't know what it means to choose to change. I think um, there's, you know, there's a book, a new book by um, Robert Sapolsky. He's a a faculty member at Stanford too. I I think the name of the book is Determined. Um, And I'm super appreciative he wrote that book because I don't, then I can just point to him instead of having to take, you know, I don't know, responsibility for this, which is a funny thing. Like, I don't, I don't know that, Free will is deeply problematic. And this comes to the idea of freedom. And in the, my book, I, I talk about it, but only in a glancing way. I talk about it as 
we want free will. I don't, I don't really get into a discussion of whether we actually have it or don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, my sense is that we don't have what most people think they want and we can have a long conversation, but in terms about, about free will and it's, it's really technical and sometimes pretty, pretty boring because it's so technical, but let's put that aside for a second and go back to change. Cause I think what we're talking about here is, can I make a, there's two things. One, can I make a choice about who I want to be? And then second, if I make that choice can I actually become that person. Right. So there's, two components mm-hmm. in that in that kind of question you're asking me. The first is about free will. And I don't know what it means to choose. I mean, you might, and if we put that aside and say like, who cares why I chose this? And if I, it's my choice or not, and, and that's fine. Like, I, I, it's okay. Um, and then the question is, can, can the change happen? Say, sure. All kinds of change happens all the time. Um, I think... The most powerful thing you can do if you want with this illusion of choice is choosing where you are socially, who you're around, Mm -hmm. the spaces that you're in. Those things will change you. Yeah. I thought that's where you might go with that one because if I decide I want to become a different person or a different aspect of me, then if I don't change my social interactions, I'm not going to actually change who I, who I see myself as. So I've got to yeah. change the social component if I'm going to change who I see myself as. Yeah, I mean, this is. I think this is pretty. I think this is somewhat under understood um, in the license now too. Like, so for example, in um, AA, my understanding is I, I don't I don't know it well, but my understanding is one of the things is you shouldn't be in spaces where people are drinking. Right? It's hard. It makes it harder if you go into the. It's hard to go to like your your normal bar. Yeah. You're trying to stop drinking, right? And, and this is because the spaces that you're in, the people you're around change how you behave, right? And if you right. want to be a different person, then you have to find different spaces and different people to be around. Right. Well, I was like a simple one. If I say I suddenly want to become more artistic, I want to see myself as a creative, then hanging around mathematicians, well, mathematicians are probably a wrong choice, but hanging around very uh, computer science analytical uh, you know, spreadsheet type people is probably not going to help exercise that creative aspect of me. If you think of those people as not creative, yes. I got it. I got it. That's fair. That's fair. I was a little careful there. Okay. It's creative in a particular way, maybe we should say. Uh, you know, I have, because I have this other thing about art, right? This is a, I don't talk about this in the book, but I have this just thing about um when we talk about art, what are we talking about? What is artistic? But we won't. We don't have to get into. Okay. That. All right. Fine. Well, fine. I'll hold that one for now. <laughs> all right. So, is changing myself, choosing to, assuming I can choose, but choosing to be a different person and therefore changing the social interactions, is that any different than changing my beliefs? I think it's. I think it's um, bigger than changing your beliefs. I think your beliefs will change, but I don't think of who you are as being defined by beliefs. Okay. So I think they're different, but I think they're related. If you change yourself, your beliefs will change. All right. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Now, how does all of this help us understand how we find meaning in life? Oh. So in the the research on the experience of meaning in life says that you need three things. So there's there's actually quite a bit of research on this. Um, it says you need coherence. That is, the world has to make sense. Um, you have to make, you have to believe that there's some order 
right? It can't be just all chaos. Um, there has to be a sense of purpose. Like when you get up, there's something to do, right? So a sense of purpose. And then the one that many people think was the most important is this sense of mattering, that what you do and who you are has to matter more than just this particular instant or moment, right? You can you can think of this as like pushing against the idea of absurdity, like in the universe, like in the existential way, which is like, who cares about what we do at all is meaningless in the end. Like you have to believe that no, it it's not meaningless in the end, right? Like there's something beyond right now, what I do matters beyond right now. And so if you think about those three things, this concept of the self, as I talk about it, as I think about it, helps you solve the problem, if you think of it as a problem of finding meaning in life in this way. First, the self gives you coherence, right? The self in these relationships tells you who you are. It tells you what people expect from you. It tells you what you can expect from other people, right? And in all kinds of ways. So just think about gender as a small component, right? It tells me like how, what kind of clothes I should wear, how I should expect people to talk to me and behave with me on the street for, for good or ill, right? It just helps me understand and make sense of the world. And the self does that. It locates you somewhere, tells you who you are. It tells you how the world works. So I think that the self is, I think of as the primary source of coherence in people's experience of the world. Okay. It gives you a perspective. I'm going to put aside purpose for now. Um, I'll talk about mattering or significance and we touched on this a little bit already. The self allows you a sense of immortality. This okay. is this is a surprising one, but I yeah, think, well, I you follow, just said yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it allows you a sense of immortality. Um, and there's actually research that is consistent with what I'm going to what my what I mean by that. But if the self is outside and exists in relationships, if you, that is yourself, actually exists in some sense outside then when you're, you physically die, the self doesn't have to go away. Right. Right. And people, and people, I think, intuitively understand this. Like, this is why people care about things like legacy. What are you talking about? You're dead. Like, yeah. but there's something you have in a sense that something is persists. Something mm -hmm. of you persists. When you think of kids, you feel like that's an extension of you. Like, I persist because my kids will persist. But when you examine that, you're like, there's something about that is strange because in all those cases, you are dead, mm -hmm. right? Like it's unless in, in putting aside the idea of a soul, and if you believe in a soul, why is putting your name on a building have, what does that have to do with anything if you are dead? But people have a sense that it matters. It feels like I'm living on and that the self allows that. So the self allows for this, I'll call it like symbolic immortality. And that also means that what you do now and today will reverberate beyond this moment, even beyond your you know, physical life. And that allows for a sense of meaning. What I'm doing right now matters. I'm making the world a better place. I'm leaving a better world to my kids. People will remember my name because I'm, my name is on this building or because I may have this award whatever it is. Like I made, I left a mark on the world. This continues to affect people and things that gives people a sense of meaning. And that requires a sense of existence beyond your physical demise. Right. Right. So that's the biggest argument we have going that the self is not the body. It can't be the body. 
Otherwise, all of these other things make no sense at all. But yet we strive, most of us strive to have some impact on that broader world. Okay, so what do you do with this sense of purpose then? Um, <clears throat> what do I do with it? I don't do much with it at all. I think it's probably, I think a self is probably necessary to have the sense of purpose. But um, honestly, this is going to, I'll probably get myself in trouble. I find it uninteresting. Okay. Part because because you can choose anything like it doesn't i don't know that it's it, i just don't find that i don't find it that interesting okay. honestly okay that's a conversation for a whole other day that i'm going to park aside <laughs> before everybody who talks about purpose calls me up and says wanda what are you talking about i get it i All get right. it <laughs> one of the let's turn back to the thing that your life is really ultimately or part of your work life is about is really race relations and how does all this understanding of self help us do a better job in the different racial identities that exist around us? You know, that's a really good question. I don't know if it is if it helps do a better job. I don't I think race is a construction. And the, if you understand that and take that seriously, and there's there's a lot of reasons to accept that as true. Um, we I won't I won't get into them, but it's it's I don't think that at this point that should this shouldn't be a controversial claim, even though in some quarters it might be. And so when we think about race relations, it's all about the ideas we construct around race. There's nothing inherent right. in race, um, and so if we accept that to be true, then it's like, all right. Why do we care? Why do we need it? Why do we want it? What is it for? What do we want the content of those ideas to be? Um, and it's, I mean, you just start thinking about it as something that we have control over. Um, we, in the, in the collective sense, um, I don't know if that helps us. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I think understanding that when you interact with someone of whatever race, there's nothing inherent in that person. It's not like because the race was etched on their soul. There's no information in that except the social information that it provides. Okay. Interesting. I thought you were going to say hmm. that if we are constructed, the self is constructed by our social interactions, then who we interact with is going to impact our sense of ourself and our sense of connectivity. I don't know. I, I've thought you were going to go in that direction. But since we're out of time, I guess we're going to have to pause that button, Brian, and come back to that notion of, you know, how can this help us? I think what I what I take away from this one, other than is a very interesting debate about what it is that I use to define my sense of self, what it means to change my sense of self, what it means to recognize I have multiple selves. And I really like this notion of that how much I'm influenced or impacted, changed by the interactions that I have in the course of a day. I think that's just a really powerful concept. And I think if people will take those to the concept of now what's my responsibility in interacting with the other, in creating their self in effect, what their experience is about and how am I inviting them to create my experience and my sense of self. That seems to me a really, really powerful takeaway. So, Brian, thanks for being a guest today. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun.
It was a lot of fun. And thanks for joining us today. If you like us, please give us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Send some feedback back. And definitely join us next week for another episode of Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.